there's a lot of new people here, and we're on our last week in a series on Micah, and it's this kind of obscure Old Testament book, this prophet, and so maybe I should catch us up. Um, Micah is an 8th century prophet. He is uh, writing in a time after Israel has had a civil war. Uh, Israel, the, the country Israel, has now been divided into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel proper. It's confusing, I know. And the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Uh, at this time, uh, Micah is living in a time when the northern kingdom, because of their sin, has been judged by this big bad army called the Assyrians. They have come and they have wiped out the northern kingdom. But this is just a foretaste of what's coming to the southern kingdom. You see, he sees that his society is full of corruption and oppression and sin, and he knows that the Assyrians are coming for them as well. And so the whole book of Micah is this, um, is this uh, series of messages, and those messages are messages of uh, pronouncements of judgment and then promises of salvation. And we see that over and over again, a pronouncement of judgment and then a promise of salvation, a pronouncement of judgment and a promise of salvation. And we get to the last chapter and we see that it's no different. It's a pronouncement of judgment and a promise of salvation. So as we look at that, let me pray for us. Lord, may we hear your word, your word which reads us shows us who we are and where we are. It knows us. And may we hear your word. Your word which revives and relieves and restores and renews and gives life. We pray these things in the name of the one who is your truth. Jesus Christ, the life of the world. Amen. It was about a year ago uh, that Pam and I got some raised beds. You know, raised garden beds, right? We had been thinking about raised beds for a while. We had been talking about it for a while. And, uh, and finally, I, I went over to a friend's house, and they had these raised beds that they had just installed, and there was all this lovely produce growing in the raised beds. And so I decided, you know, we should get some raised beds because... We like produce, and we like to cook. Well, Pam likes to cook, and I like to eat. And we like fresh food, and so we're going to get some raised beds. And so for our anniversary, I got raised beds. We hadn't gotten any before because the only success that we have ever had with plants is to kill them. So I, um, I, that joke was supposed to come earlier, and it was a lot better when I practiced it this morning. Uh, I was the only one there, so, but I laughed. Anyway, so, um, so I, you know, we, we got these raised beds. I got them for our anniversary. We set them up, uh, and then we went to the store, and we just, we went to the store, and we got everything we love to eat. Like everything. We, oh, that looks good. That looks good. That looks good. And we just stuffed it in the raised beds. And uh, a few months later, we go out there and I, you know, I think that we got a little cilantro for our tacos and things like that. And that was about it. That was about it. I mean, it was just barren. And so we ripped that up. And then uh, a couple months later, we decided we're going to do this right. And so we were careful about the soil that we put in. And then we were careful not to overplant. And then we were careful to water 
uh, each and every day or I don't know, however you're supposed to water. And then after that, um, we, we kept and we waited and we went out. And I think we got one serving of broccolini that we were able to uh, do Rochambeau with as a family to see who's going to be able to get the two broccolini versus the one stem of broccolini for our meal. So last Friday, Pam goes out to the raised beds and she just rips them all up again because they were absolutely barren. And I thought about that because that is the picture that we have at the beginning of Micah chapter 7. The beginning of Micah chapter 7, someone comes to a vineyard that's supposed to be producing fruit, but there is no fruit there. It is barren, and so they're coming to rip up the fruit. Now, what you need to know is throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, Israel, God's people, are likened to a vineyard that God plants in the midst of the nations. We see this in Jeremiah 2, or we see it in Psalm 80. We see it in Isaiah 5. God plants Israel in the midst of the nations, and they are to be like a vineyard, and they are to produce fruit, and that fruit is to produce wine, wine that is to bless the nations. But here God comes. And what does he find? Verse 1, there's no cluster to eat. There's no first ripe fig that a soul would desire. Barren, fruitless. Now, the fruit that God is looking for, you need to know, is not Pinot or Syrah or Gamay. Now, the fruit that he's looking for is found in verse 2. The godly have perished from the earth. Now, that word godly there is actually the word that we looked at last week, that Hebrew word hesed. What it's saying is that that there's no one in the earth who produces hesed, who produces faithful, loyal, steadfast love. There's no one who loves justice, who loves loyal love, who walks humbly with God. They're all gone. In fact, it goes on in verse 2, there's no upright among mankind. Verse 3, it's not even that they don't do good. They are skilled at doing bad. It says that, that, their hands, uh, that their hands are set on what is evil, and they do it well. Literally, they do evil with both hands. I love The Princess Bride. You like The Princess Bride? There's that scene in The Princess Bride where the man in black, if you have not watched The Princess Bride, go watch the, just don't take any more notes in the sermon. Just go watch the, write that down. Anyway, in The Princess Bride, uh, the man in black is fighting uh, Indigo Montoya. And as he's fighting Indigo Montoya, he goes and he is, um, uh, and Montoya says before he fights him, I'm going to fight him left-handed. And they get in the midst of this, this battle. And then it, at one point in the battle, uh, Montoya is backed up against the rocks. And he says, I have, I have something. There's something I know. I have a secret for you. He goes, I'm not left-handed. Right? And he switches hands. Uh, it might be the other way around, but you can correct me later. Um, and then the man in black switches hands as well. And you're supposed to know, like, hey, these guys are ambidextrous. And to be ambidextrous, that's like a really skilled sword fighter. Micah says that these people are ambidextrous at doing evil. That's how skilled they are. In fact, no one can be trusted 
Verse 3, the leaders can't be trusted. The prince and the judge, they both ask for a bribe. You can't trust your neighbors or your friends, verse 5. In fact, even your most intimates, your family members, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, they can't be trusted either, verse 6. This is a dark, dark, dark world. And it's our world. It's our world. Because even though Micah is writing about one specific time and one specific place and one specific instantiation of the darkness of this world and the way in which that manifests, the reality is is that Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, when he talks about what the state of humanity generally, he quotes from this text. He's saying, this is, there's no one good. No, not one. All have turned to sway. This is life in the world in which we live. The Avid brothers sing a song called January Wedding. In it, they say, I hope I don't sound too insane when I say there's darkness all around us. And I think it can sound like the ravings of a madman to say that there's darkness all around us and that there's pervasive sin everywhere and you can't trust anyone. But let me just ask you a question. When you came here this morning, did you lock your house door? What about when you got out of your car and you came here? Did you lock it? Did you, make, you probably clicked it three times, didn't you, just to make sure it made the little sound, especially if you saw someone around, didn't you? Why'd you do that? Why do we have PIN codes and passwords? Why do we have to vigilantly watch our children and their use of technology? Why do we like alerts from our credit cards? when there's suspicious activity? Why do we live in a world like this? Because we know that there is darkness all around. And we live as if there is darkness all around. It's why we know that there are people who are predatory predatory and they prey on children and their use of technology. We have prenuptial agreements because we can't even trust the people that we are going to marry. We have churches, churches who, who, who use non-disclosure agreements like freely and we think nothing of it. We some of you know the pain, many of you know the pain of not being able to trust a sibling or a parent or a child. And you have to put up safeguards. G.K. Chesterton, a writer, a theologian, lay theologian, he once quipped that pervasive sinfulness is the only Christian doctrine that is empirically provable. We see it all around and we act according to it all the time. And the reality is, is it can leave us feeling hopeless if we dwell on it, can it? I mean, some of you, you have, you are caught in addiction or you have a loved one caught in addiction and you just feel defeated. Others of you, 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 
feel like you're stuck in a miserable relationship or a miserable career and it brings you no joy. You have no anticipation of excitement over the future. For some of you, you are processing the effects of mental illness or of family betrayal or even of international war and it's left you confused and disillusioned and hopeless. And so the question is, in a world like this, how do we hold on to hope? Micah gives us an answer. Verse 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. Micah says, if you want to hold on to hope in a hopeless world, here's what you do. You don't look in, which is what often we try to do. There's no hope there. You don't look around at your circumstances. There's no hope there. No, you look up to the Lord. That's what you do. And this looking, looking to the Lord, it entails two things. First, it entails waiting. Verse 7, Micah says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. See, if you are looking to someone to provide something, that means you're trusting in them. And if you're trusting in them and you're trusting in them to provide it and not looking somewhere else, then that means that you're going to have to wait on them to provide it. I was recently invited by a friend to a concert at the Bowl. It was a great experience, but uh, he, he emailed a couple of folks or reached out. And he said, hey, um, I, I've got tickets to this concert. Meet me there. Let's go. And so we show up, and, and it's me and... About three other guys were walking up to the uh, were walking up to the entrance, and as we get up to the entrance, um, he walks up and we walk up, and then, you know, the people at the entrance are looking at us, and we're not looking at them; we're looking at him, because we don't have tickets. And he's kind of getting out his phone. It's a little awkward. And I looked around, and all three of us who had been invited by this guy are just looking at him and looking at his phone, thinking like, okay, he invited us. He really is going to have the tickets, right? He really is going to pull the tickets out for us, right? And so he pulls the tickets out, and he swipes one. And then I'm like, is there another? And he swipes another. Is there another? We are all looking at his phone. Why? Because we were trusting that he was the one who was going to provide for us. And we were sitting there waiting until he got out his phone and he pulled up his app and he scanned our ticket. That's what Mike is talking about. We are waiting on the Lord for what though? For the Lord to fulfill his promises. All the promises that he has made throughout this book. The promise that God will vindicate his people, verse 10. The promise that God will rebuild Jerusalem, which has been decimated, verse 11. The promise that God would send a shepherd that would go out amongst the nation and regather his lost sheep and bring them home and guard them and protect them and feed them so that they flourish, verse 14. Uh, The promise that God would humble the nations, verse 14, and then draw the nations in, verses 16 and 17, and even convert the nations to himself so that the nations come and bow the knee to Israel's God, verse 18. In other words, that that God would come and bring salvation, that wars would cease, that, that guns would be turned into plowshares, that there would be economic flourishing, And justice would prevail. That is what we are waiting for. That is what it means to look to the Lord. 
You say, wait a second, Kyle, won't that just make us passive? I mean, if we, if we are just waiting on the Lord, if we're just looking on the Lord, won't that be an abdication of our responsibility to love neighbor? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that knowing that my friend was going to provide tickets and looking to him and uh, waiting on him, did that make me inactive? Did I stay home that night? No, I, I got out. And, and not only did I get out and, and drive to the concert and walk to the concert, I, I brought a sweater. And I put on a sweater as I walked up to the gate. Why did I put on a sweater? Because I believed that I was going to get through the gate and I was going to be standing outside that night. And, and not only that, when I went up to the security, you know, because you go there before you go into the entrance. When I went up to the security, I proceeded to empty out my pockets and go through the security and do the security checks. Why? Because I believed and trusted and knew that my friend was going to provide a ticket. It didn't make me inactive. It made me very active as I anticipated him providing. See, the waiting that Micah is talking about is an expected waiting. It's an anticipatory waiting. It's a waiting that starts working even now, knowing that God is going to provide. Anthony Ashley Cooper was the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. He lived from 1801 to 1885. Uh, during that time, he had a political career, and he was a philanthropist and a social reformer, and he was incredibly active. He was also a Christian. During his time in Parliament, he limited, he, uh, he created laws that limited child labor. He reformed the educational system. He fought for mental health. And during a time when opium was spreading like wildfire throughout England, he also fought against the spread of opium. At the very end of his life, he had this to say, quote, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. I don't think that over the last 40 years of my career and all this activity, I've spent, I've gone more than one hour without reflecting on Jesus' return. See, it was precisely because Lord Shaftesbury was waiting on God to come and bring salvation that he was anticipating that salvation in all the places in which God had called him to. Because he knew that this God is a God who comes and fulfills his promises and brings salvation, and so I'm going to get busy preparing the way. What about you? Are you waiting on God? Are you waiting on God to heal your 35-year-old marriage? Are you waiting on God to rescue your middle child from addiction? Are you waiting on God to open your friend's eyes to the truth and beauty about who Jesus is and what he has done? Are you waiting on God to bring justice to your workplace? Are you waiting on God or are you frantically looking through your pockets? For your ticket. Here, there, and everywhere. Are you waiting on God or have you given up and gone home because he was five minutes too late and he didn't make your timetable? 
But as for me, Micah says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Looking to God entails waiting. But looking to God also entails worship. Verse 7 goes on, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Which suggests what? That, that Micah is speaking to God. In fact, the rest of this chapter is a hymn. A hymn which climaxes in verses 18 and 20. Where Micah sings out, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? The question is rhetorical. The answer is clear. There is no God like our God. Micah sings, there is no God like our God who pardons iniquity, verse 18. There is no God like our God. To pardon is to pull something away, to tear it apart. It has the sense of unburdening someone, but in unburdening someone, you're taking the burden on to yourself. God is taking away his people's burden, and what burden is it that he is taking onto himself? Who pardons iniquity? There is no God like our God who would take on his people's sin upon themselves. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Micah sings, there is no God like our God who pardons iniquity. Micah sings, there is no God like our God who passes over transgression, verse 18. To pass over something is to overlook it. It's to not make a fuss about it. It's to, it's to, it's to ignore it. Do you ever get stuck on something? Something that happened, something someone said? And you just can't get it out of your head and you just kind of chew on it and you turn on it and you lay awake at night thinking about it and you really don't want to. You really want to stop. You wish that you weren't thinking about it anymore, but you just can't stop. You can't get it out of your head. You just, you can't do it. Somebody's wronged you in some way and you want it. You want to just let it go, but you can't let it go and you just kind of, God doesn't do that. God doesn't perseverate. God doesn't stew. There's no God like our God, Micah sings, who passes over transgressions. There's no God like our God who does not retain his anger forever. You see, God never loses patience. He never lashes out. He never holds a grudge. Any of you have had children, you know. You know that, that, that you can hold your patience so long, but every once in a while, even the most patient of us lose it. I still remember one time I couldn't get our daughter to brush her teeth and I threw her toothbrush. I want you to know that the next thing I did was I opened up an account for her counseling fund, which I've been putting money into each time things like that's happened. I mean, I don't know why you guys are saving for college. I'm saving for counseling. I mean, you know what it's like. You lose your patience, God doesn't do that, ever. He doesn't lose his patience. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't hold a grudge. There is no God like our God who does not retain his anger forever. There is no God like our God who delights in steadfast love. It's the central line of Micah's hymn, and it's 
perhaps the most important. It's the word hesed that we talked about last week, where, where in a covenant relationship, uh, a greater party would see the need of a lesser party, and they would faithfully show up to meet that need when the person was in trouble. A greater king would make a covenant with a weaker king, and if that weaker king was ever in trouble, or if their kingdom was ever in trouble, they would bring all their resources and their power to bear, and they wouldn't give up on them. This is the term hesed and what it means, and it says, that God will come to us in our need. Loyally, faithfully, lovingly come to us in all of our needs. There's no God like our God. He, he doesn't ask us to meet His needs because He has no needs and we have no resources, but He comes and He meets our needs with all of His resources. And notice that it doesn't just say that God shows steadfast love. It says that He delights in showing steadfast love. He doesn't do it out of duty. He doesn't do it just because, well, I made a promise and I have to, otherwise my reputation is on the line. No, he does it because he wants to. He delights in showing steadfast love. Here's what this means. It means that God doesn't just love you. He loves to love you. He loves to love you and serve you and meet your needs. There is no God like our God, Micah sings who delights in steadfast love. There is no God like our God who shows compassion. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. The word in the New Testament that's translated compassion is used something like 18 times throughout the gospel. It means this, this deep yearning that like a mother has for a child. And every time but once it's used in the New Testament, it's used of either God or Jesus. Jesus tells a story about a son, a wayward son, who goes off and he squanders his father's wealth. And then after a, uh, many years of hard living and wasting his money, he comes home. And it says that the father, as he had so often done, was outside looking for him, waiting on him. And when he saw his son, who had been threadbare and hard up, he looked out and it says that he felt compassion on him. And he ran to embrace him. This is what God feels for us. There is no God like our God. And notice that it doesn't just say that he shows compassion, but he will again have compassion. See, Micah is reflecting on the Exodus. And he continues to sing about the Exodus. There is no God like our God, Micah sings, who vanquishes his people's enemies. He goes on, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sin into the depth of the sea. This is an allusion to when God rescued Israel from Egypt and how uh, he tread and trampled Israel's enemies underfoot, how he cast Pharaoh's armies into the depth of the sea. But notice here that the enemy that God defeats, the enemy that God vanquishes is not the Egyptians, it is not the Assyrians, it is not the Babylonians, it is not the Romans, but it is his people's most persistent, their ancient, their oldest, their worst enemy. It is their sin. And that he destroys. See, God doesn't just overlook our sin. 
God doesn't just pardon our sin. God destroys our sin. At its root cause and its consequence, He destroys its presence and its power. That is what He came to do. There is no God like our God. Your addictions, He destroys them. Your lack of self-control, He destroys them. Your anger, He destroys. Your judgmental thoughts, He destroys. Your biting tongue, He destroys. Your passive-aggressive emotional manipulations that you don't even realize that you're doing until after the fact, He destroys. Your racial biases, He destroys. Your laziness, your selfishness, your cowardice, and mine, He destroys them all. He vanquishes them. There is no God like our God who comes to destroy sin. Why? Why will He do that? Because He promised Micah sings, there is no God like our God who, verse 20, will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. You see, this is the God who when he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And he has promised to save his people from all their sins. So Micah says, come and worship God. Looking to God means worshiping God. It means coming before the God who is forgiving and relenting and loving and compassionate and victorious and faithful and who is all these things in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who went around announcing the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ, who who was deeply compassionate and, and even wept over Jerusalem, the city that was to destroy him. Jesus Christ, who, who delights in showing steadfast love, who, who when we were sinners died for us, who who got low to serve us, who did not use his power and his resources to his own advantage and exploit them, but he became a man and not a man, not just a man, but a slave, not just a slave, but a slave who served and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. Jesus Christ, in whom all God's promises are yes and amen, who is the faithful one. Worship Jesus. Because if you do, it will change you in the here and now. And it will change how you experience this dark world. Notice the effect that it has on the singer in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 are very interesting. They read, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I will bear the judgment of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. I, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Do you hear the confidence? Rejoice not over me, my enemy. No, I will rise. And he knows this even though he bears the judgment of the Lord because of his sin. Why? Because he knows that the God that he worships is the God who delights in showing steadfast love, who will not retain his anger forever. And because he's worshipped him, and because he knows this, he knows that even if he undergoes the discipline of the Lord, that discipline is ultimately for his good. 
and that the Lord will rescue him from all these things. And so he has confidence in the judgment and confidence because he know, in the face of adversity because he knows what the future holds. It's the salvation of God. And it not only gives him confidence now, it also changes his perspective on the here and now. Look, he says, though I fall, I rise, I think is the better translation. He says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord is my light. Not, not after I sit in darkness. Not after I fall. But what he's saying, I believe, is that even in the midst of the pain and the darkness, this God who is sovereign and good and loving, who delights to show steadfast love, who is compassionate and merciful. I am so rooted in his character that I know that even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of the darkness, God is doing something beautiful. And the most poignant illustration of this, the climactic event in which God does something beautiful out of the darkness is the story of Jesus. We're in the darkest moment of humanity. That's where God shows that he was loyally faithful and steadfast love. When God was judging the world, he was also loving the world with the deepest love that it could ever imagine. And so when you come before this God and you look to him and you wait on him and you worship him, you're renewed in the sense that, that this God and his presence, that this God is for me. And this God is for the world. And this God loves. That's how you have hope. So let's worship this God now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.